Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Some audio in this episode may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. From Sundance TV and Sundance Now, this is The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox. Join me as I explore the dark corners, dig into the unresolved questions, and get personal with the humans at the heart of Sundance true crime documentaries. Tony and Susie were our gods. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Amen, Christians. It was a collision of two very dangerous people who then created this religious foundation. The IRS started getting involved, and then he started these beatings. His pathology mutated. Apparently, he decided to go with little girls. I knew he was raping those kids and beating them because he'd done it to me. This is Summer. He took Summer when she was about this age. I mean, look at her. He groomed her, took her as a wife, and put her into his sexual rotation. This season, I'm going behind the scenes of the four-part docuseries Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo. Last time, we talked with former cult members Rebecca Gay, Jessica Cooper, and Benjamin Rishi about growing up in the cult, never knowing an outside world. That was rough. It reminded me a lot of prison. Now, it's about to get a lot darker. The young girls taken as Tony's spiritual wives were traumatized in a way that is so deep, so vast, it hurts me just hearing about it. Partly because it pushes me past thinking of Tony Alamo as an abusive, exploitive con artist to something far worse. Others call it evil. I don't like that word, but I understand why people use it especially when I think about how this happened right under the noses of the parents, sometimes with their blessing. There were moments when I was locked away that I feared sexual abuse. A guard once cornered me in a shower and tried to kiss me. My first weeks in, the vice warden interrogated me each night, probing me about my sex life and asking if I would fuck him. I pretended to not understand his Italian. But that's as bad as it got. I was never raped. I made it through those years relatively unscathed in that regard. In this episode, we have an exclusive interview with former members Summer Hagen and Amy Eddy. At age 8 and 14, Summer and Amy were taken as spiritual brides by Tony Alamo. 
They were held prisoner in his house and sexually abused for years. After Tony was convicted of his crimes, Summer and Amy, along with other abuse victims, sued Tony Alamo and his related businesses in a civil case that was instrumental in dismantling the cult. Here's Summer. The whole isolation aspect of being in Tony's house, I think, was also different from the rest of the the members or the congregation, if you will. And it wasn't just the sexual abuse that set us apart. We all endured a lot. Being a quote-unquote wife in Tony's house, that level of isolation and that level of, like, there were cameras and monitors and watchmen and guarded, you know, gunmen just keeping us in this house. It was like a prison. And being a boy, you were privileged. You were not, you didn't have to experience that isolation and the sexual abuse and just the like no escape. There was no privacy. There was no anything. And just constant being around Tony's rage, you know, living in the house with him, not being able to escape it. I think it was more than just the sexual abuse that set us apart. And here's Amy. Tony very much kept us quiet by telling us, you know, you can lie to the people in government because the Bible says don't cast your pearls before swine. And the government was the swine. So it was definitely very confusing more than anything. I was always in my head. Is this really God? You know, is this really what God is like? Tony had invited some of the brothers and sisters to Memphis for dinner. So I went and I see Tony and then there's some of the girls, they're 15 or 16 years old and they're waving at me and I wave at them because I had taught them school and I babysat them, I loved them. And Tony starts talking and goes, come here my wives. And he starts putting his arms around all of them and kissing them and I was horrified. I had no idea these young girls, Tony was marrying these young girls, I had no idea. The very first time I came over to his house, I was seven or eight years old, and he had invited my sister and I to come over. And at the time, I didn't realize that it was because he had already seen a picture of me and he had already decided that he wanted to marry me. But I was young. I was I was invited to come over and play with the other kids in his house. And, and I came over, and that was the first time that I had really seen him in action because he was in prison for a lot of my childhood. And I didn't realize that he had so many wives. I didn't realize he was a polygamist. And I didn't realize that he was, he had so much rage. And, uh, you know, I had just been taught my whole life that he was basically this God figure or like this Jesus figure. And I was very confused, you know, walking into the house and, and seeing all of that. And I was so afraid of like doing something wrong. And then like, I, I was just expecting like this godlike figure. And, and what I saw was just rage. And I saw like all of these young women, you know, massaging him. And, and then when my sister and I went to leave for the day, he had one of the sisters, we called them sisters, one of the older wives, she was like in her 20s, come and talk to me and my sister before we left. And he said, anything that you see in this house stays in this house. I guess that made me question, why can't I talk to my parents about this? You know, it was just, it immediately created the separation even between me and my parents, because now I can no longer communicate with them in the same way. It was more confusion than really, and just being perplexed and trying to piece it together and trying to make sense of it. Of course she couldn't make sense of it. She was only eight. I wasn't in the house very long, I think maybe a month or something, when he had one of his other wives telling me things that her brothers did to her when she was little. And graphic details of things I had no idea anything about. I knew nothing about sex. 
And then she apparently goes back to Tony. At this time, I had no idea Tony is telling her to tell me these things, to see if I had had sex, to see if I was a virgin. Here's Debbie Shriver, author of the book Whispering in the Daylight. Some of the children that I talked with described strained relationships with the older women, the wives, um, the more traditional aged wives that were in the house, that they would not be kind to them either. Did you see that? Yes, I I definitely had that experience. I think there was a a bit of, I want to say jealousy. I don't mean to be judgmental towards the older people that were there, but it was just, there was a lot of manipulation, obviously, on Tony's part, a lot of psychology behind it all. But he would pin us against one another because if we supported one another, then obviously we'd be more of a threat to him. So, And with the older wives, I think that they knew that they couldn't compete with kids because Tony really liked kids. He was a pedophile. When he chose me to be a wife, he literally told me, that I had the body of a six-year-old, and that's why he was attracted to me. And I think that the older sisters knew that they were never going to get younger. They were not even old. I mean, a lot of them were in their 20s. I was so young that I didn't want to be a wife. I didn't care about having the attention of a quote-unquote husband. I just wanted my parents, really. Here's attorney David Carter, who represented the underage wives in their civil trial against Tony Alamo. Tony actually solicited photographs of children while he was in prison so that he could see the kids that were still in the church. He was, in fact, selecting his victims. And so Amy was selected to be a wife and became one when he got out of prison. The first time I saw Tony, his rage after he got out of prison, I mean, I heard him yelling over the phone at the sister's And, you know, I had been in trouble several times uh, when he was in prison, but when he got out, it, when I saw him, his abuse to little babies, they were just babies, three-year-olds, and one of them being his very own child and the other one being his stepson, and that terrified me because I had never seen that in my life, and my mom always raised me against that. So it was very, very shocking and very scary. And that's when I guess my initial doubt really started was when I saw him do that to his own children. Amy was 16 and already one of Tony's spiritual wives when Summer entered the household. We basically first started to get to know each other in Tony's house when I was like seven or eight and I started being invited to come over and visit. And eventually... We became friends there. She, we're eight years apart. I was the youngest wife in Tony's house. But Amy's always been so sweet. We had so many different punishments. It's crazy. Anything that we seemed to enjoy or it would get, be taken away from us. One of the times our punishment was that Amy and I, we couldn't talk to each other at a certain point. And because we were, we got along and that was, you know, that wasn't cool. That just speaks to how much we did get along and that like we we always loved each other. We were sisters. Tony's house was an isolated inner sanctum within an already isolated compound. But his legal troubles over the last decade had been all over the news, and the local community kept a curious eye trained towards the Alamo Ministries. Here's David again. Living in the Texarkana area, which is uh, on the border of Arkansas and Texas, I was generally aware of Tony Alamo Christian Ministries. I knew some of the historical background, for instance, uh, his tax evasion conviction and the fact that he had done time. Uh, I knew generally of 
about the the history of what happened when Susan Alamo died and the, the battle for her body. I was aware that they distributed literature randomly, uh, putting leaflets on cars. But like most people in this area, I had no clue what all was going on in the compound in Falk, Arkansas. When the raid occurred, I of course became aware of that. Uh, and, and that's really the first time that I was in a position to start paying close attention to what was apparently going on and, of course, we ultimately determined was going on. I think the people of Falk were suspicious, and certainly in that area, it was Tony's goal to rule the town. That's one reason a rural area attracted him and also the position of that town and and the corners of all the states there. But today, the people of Falk have expressed to me a little bit of guilt and shame that they didn't do something. I think they feel helpless about that. The folks who live in that area, particularly in Falk, had been fully aware of what was going on behind the the walls and inside the homes of that compound. They would have taken action long ago. I just wanted to add to that because David took us to Falk uh, when we were producing the series. Leslie Mattingly, executive producer. Seeing that house, and it seems like a very ordinary home from the outside, but when you think back to what they were experiencing at the time and how there were armed guards outside and how it was cut off from the residence, just even walking inside that house, you, you can feel that it, you know, it did feel like a prison, the, the way that the house was laid out, the way that the additions were put onto the house without hallways, and, and you know, what Summer said before about feeling the isolation, you, you could really feel it when you walked in that house. If you read Debbie's book... You're, you're going to ask yourself, how in the world could a parent knowingly allow their daughter to be moved into a house with a 70-year-old man uh, who had made it known that he was, was taking uh, these young girls as his spiritual brides? Uh, what you have to understand is that Tony Alamo did the same thing that Jim Jones did, that David Koresh did. Uh, he convinced uh, the parents of these children that he was a prophet, that he spoke for God, and that what he said was of God. And so that is how we come to a point where parents at different degrees of some enthusiasm, some with reluctance, allowed their children to, to be placed in that environment. Everyone in that group was to some degree victimized. It's something that you really can't fully understand if you've not been subjected to that environment where Tony Alamo is God's mouthpiece. It's hard to understand, and I gave up trying to understand it a long time ago. No one questioned Tony's authority. They just didn't. It's hard to understand, but not as hard as a lot of people think. It's the sunk cost fallacy. It's ego. The same problem plagues the justice system, the political system. This isn't unique to cults, but cults push it to a breaking point. David mentioned Jim Jones. An important thing I learned last season was that cult followers are so often committed to a better life, a higher ideal. And when that ideal gets compromised, people double down. You have to consider that most of these people were targeted when they were teenagers, and most of these people didn't have a lot of love and support in their lives, so they were already especially vulnerable at the time that they joined. And at the time that they joined, the cult hadn't progressed to as corrupt as it was 
say when I, when I was a child and when I was taken as a wife, my parents both joined when they were teenagers separately. They married in the cult and they had kids years later. So there, there's a, a term in psychology that's called entrapment. And it's a, it's a process where people, they escalate their commitment to a cause in order to justify their investment. So they invest, and then the more somebody questions them, the more that they respond, like they need to explain themselves and they need to justify it. And their commitment becomes stronger. Ever so slowly, you started connecting things. After we left, we had a granddaughter, a beautiful baby girl. And she was at my house, and she spilt her milk. And she started to cry, but she had this look of terror on her face. And I looked at her and said, baby, it's OK. And in that moment, I understood that I allowed my children to be beaten. Those thoughts just crashed. So then we went to our sons, and we apologized to both of them. And we tried to start over. These people really, really gave their power over to Tony Alamo. They were kids themselves when they joined, most of them. And when we're in adolescence, our brain isn't fully developed. They didn't have parents and people to pull them out and stop it before it was too late. And and they needed guidance. They didn't have that from their parents. You're supposed to have guidance when you're, you know, a teenager. And they got that from Tony and Susan Alamo before she, you know, passed. And then just over the years, I mean, over the decades, they just got into the habit of not having to think and of actually not not thinking, not questioning, not making decisions. Everything was done for them. And that ability was very much weakened. It became more and more weak. It wasn't used. I'm not sure that people can take other people's power. I think people can manipulate other people to give up their power. When you give up your power to somebody who's as corrupt as Tony Alamo, then he becomes more powerful because he has your power, not because he's already powerful, but because he has your power. And they were also separated from each other. They were deprived of sleep. They were worked hard. What they ate was controlled. And so it's almost the worst boot camp you can think of. There was also no access to pop culture, to the news, to books, to TV, to movies, to other people. There was so much isolation. They have nothing else that's influencing them. It's a community of abuse. The thing that makes this even more horrendous and complicated, it's not limited in a family, but in fact, it's a whole community that is isolated. Such isolation and exhaustion sounds insidious. Powerful people tiring out their subjects' bodies to keep control of their minds. You see that with Jim Jones conscripting his followers to labor 16 hours a day building a community in the unforgiving jungle. But this is just a truth of human psychology, and it's utilized not just by cults, but by military boot camps, sports teams, even daycare centers. Run the kids around and they'll drink their juice and take a damn nap. It was an arduous process once I had the clients on board and ready to proceed and trying to get others who were in a position to provide us with information and assistance to do it. Another thing that we faced was the factual and legal argument that we were interfering or trying to interfere with religious beliefs. 
and that there shouldn't be a civil action that that seeks some form of liability simply because uh, people were practicing what they believe. And the distinction we we drew and the courts agreed with was you have the right to believe that a 70-year-old man can take an 11-year-old girl as a wife, but when you start to practice that, you're violating norms and laws that we have in this country. We had to vet that through the courts, and the court agreed with us that to believe is one thing, but to act on that belief is another. We typically had a dozen to 15, sometimes 20 attorneys on the other side of the case advocating for their client. It's very difficult to wage a war on an ideology, and you can't plan on convincing cult members to turn on their belief system, on Tony. So David tried to disempower him bureaucratically. In an echo of the earlier IRS case and of Al Capone, he went after the money, the property. Probably the most time-consuming part of the civil case was trying to figure out how the properties were held. And Tony had accumulated a number of commercial real estate properties, apartment complexes, businesses, houses, to try to protect himself. He would put title, legal title, to those properties in the names of his followers and was constantly having title to the properties changed from you know one name to the other. So in order to put him out of business, so to speak, by taking the properties, we had to convince the courts that uh, these properties, although they were held in the name of others, were ultimately controlled by Tony, and the courts agreed, and that's how we were able to have those properties seized and sold off in order to pay the judgments that we had secured on behalf of the victims. But I also tried to to pattern this case somewhat after what the Southern Poverty Law Center had done with the Ku Klux Klan, and that is litigate them out of business. We found, uh, as we had planned, that if you take away all the buildings, all the assets, things tend to scatter to the four winds, and for the most part, I think we accomplished that. But to get to that place, Amy and Summer and the other victims of Tony Alamo had to be willing to testify. It's a huge ask, and it requires a huge mental shift. And if you watch the four-part docuseries Ministry of Evil, you'll see that shift happening, especially with Amy. I told them I don't want to be on TV. I don't want my name anywhere. You know, I said all these things. I don't want to testify. And so then I went on and told my story of what I could remember at the time. And then I was given my subpoena. And I was, I would rather tell my, my story of what happened than go to jail if I was called to testify. It was pretty much what, what made me do it because I was still afraid that he was a prophet of God and I was gonna go to hell for testifying. I was so in my head still that I put this fleece before God. And I was like, if you want me to recant everything that I said, even though it's true, if you don't want me to say it, then just make the weather cold. And it was like really hot. I was really still very brainwashed. So that fleece that I did when the weather didn't change, I was like, well, I guess I'm all in, you know? We all stood there and we held hands as we waited. On count one, guilty. Two, guilty. On the 10th count, he was guilty. We broke into tears. The jury delivered what many consider to be a shocking verdict that Tony Alamo is guilty on all 10 counts. And the judge in the case hands down a stiff sentence. Tony Alamo will spend the rest of his life 
in a federal prison. He couldn't get away this time. He always managed to get away with stuff, but this time they had him. It was done. When they said he was guilty on all 10 counts, I, you know, I was so happy and we all started happy crying. But then that moment of just that second of happiness and then all of a sudden my mind was like, wait, but what if he, you know, appeals and, and they take it back to trial? And so, you know, I, I still had that struggle for a long time. I am so happy that I am not there anymore. You know, I have grown so much from then and I'm I'm really glad that I stood up against someone so evil so that nobody else has to fall into something like that or worse. The courage that it took for these girls to face Tony down both in the criminal trial and then through the civil process because what you have to understand is not only was everything they went through of God in terms of what they were they were told. But when they each decided to make their stand and to testify against Tony, they became enemies of the church. For the most part, their own families turned on them. They became false accusers. Uh, they were vilified verbally. Literature was put out and distributed about how these young ladies were, were making all this up. In the era of Me Too, we're finally recognizing the immense difficulty women face when coming forward with an accusation of sexual abuse or assault. The backlash they know is waiting for them. What these girls, Summer and Amy, were facing when they testified, it was the believe women problem times 100. That's why it took some time for each of them to reach a point where they were ready to do that. And you stack on top of the opposition they faced from everyone they knew, their entire social system. The people they had to turn to to trust were from the outside of the world. They held their own with some really good high-priced lawyers questioning them. And so to hear both of them today articulate so well where they are in life and where they want to go and how they want to help other people, it uh, makes me extremely proud. I was 15 the last time I had fully escaped from the cult. And I was on my own. I had no support system. Um, I had no trust of anyone. I was just learning to really trust myself, and that was like the best I could do. At first, I was hesitant. I was kind of apprehensive because I had only ever witnessed Tony winning and Tony getting away with everything, and I couldn't even imagine him being convicted. I couldn't imagine someone else winning for, for once in my life. So, so yes, I was apprehensive, but I still agreed, and my agreeing, even though I was nervous, was the best decision I think I've ever made in my life. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of. There were five of us, five of us who were either born into it or underage when we were there. And like, I was still a child when I testified and it was just our word. And just, that was the beginning of us taking our power back, of speaking our truth at the risk of eternal damnation. Like we were taught that this was blasphemy and that we would spend eternity in hell. It was so empowering. It was also, just so rewarding to know that we had stopped the perpetuation of this abuse, that he couldn't rape little girls anymore. When these girls challenged Tony Alamo, in their minds, they were legitimately risking eternal damnation. And that makes them among the bravest people ever. And also among the loneliest. 
one of the hardest things was just feeling so isolated and so alone and not having anybody to understand and not realizing that the culture shock, not having any common ground with the rest of society, feeling alienated, feeling like I just dropped down from a different planet. I judged myself for it. Nobody communicated with me. Nobody asked me any questions that helped me to process all of this. So it just felt really alone. I would be curious to know, Amy and Summer, what your initial reaction was when you learned that Tony had died in prison. My initial reaction was disbelief. I didn't believe it. I had to find out if it was true. (laughs) And I really knew. I just looked up. And usually when it's someone that I have cared about and, and they have passed, it always rains. And when I looked up at the sky, it was like it had stopped raining and the clouds were clearing. And I'm like, even the universe is happy that this man is dead. So (laughs) for the longest time, I knew 100%, of course, he is not a man of God. But when you're raised in something and you're brainwashed, I I, I was so brainwashed. And this little voice still is like, but what if? And of course, I knew that that wasn't it at all. But when he died, it was like it everything just that voice could not come back because he's dead and the third day came and he didn't raise again and it was just like now they'll leave now everyone will see so I'm just waiting I'm just waiting for my mom to come out (laughs) I'm just waiting for her I was just really hopeful that the few people that were left would finally have to confront the fact that he was a false prophet in a way I expected to be a lot more excited and it was just like oh yeah, okay, he's dead. (laughs) I was surprised that it wasn't more exciting because there was so much excitement and it was so surreal when we had won the federal trial. I almost expected his death to be kind of like that. The truth is when a cult leader dies, the cult doesn't necessarily die too. Tony doesn't have and never did have the ability to free anyone. He installed a template of beliefs and values inside you. Certainly the born and raised kids have no pre-cult identity even to come back to. The only way we can really be free is to free ourselves. For me, that's that's been my saving grace is taking responsibility. And it's been really hard. And at times, like I was really young and I was really overwhelmed. And I, in a way, I was like, somebody saved me, you know, and nobody saved me. Nobody saved me when I was there. Nobody saved me when I was out. It was always me saving myself. We focus on the differences and not putting ourselves in each other's shoes. And like, if I put myself in their shoes, then, oh my God, like they were so taken advantage of. They were so innocent and it was their, it was their light and their desire to grow and their desire to learn. People don't join a cult when they have these loving, supportive families. They do it because they're lacking in some way. In a way, what they have to confront is shame. And shame is a hard one to confront, guilt and shame and and embarrassment, the the fact that they were adults and they did make these decisions. We don't have to confront that because the decision that we made was to escape. We never made the decision to join. When he was guilty on all 10 counts, that's when I was truly able to begin to start healing. I wanted to pretend that it never happened. It forced me to look at the inside and figure out how to heal because I thought you know I'm fine I'm just gonna come out here and forget that it ever happened you know and I didn't realize how much I had kind of compartmentalized in a way or dissociated you know like put a lid on all my feelings to just survive and get through whatever was right in front of me once we were 
confronted with all of the time on our hands, there was a lot that came up. Like there was just room for everything to surface. We didn't have parental figures. We didn't have any support system. We, we missed out on so much education. We didn't have much schooling growing up. We didn't have, you know, there, there was, we were just so behind just in our society and our culture. And so time was precious. It was, it was important that there's just this psychological feeling of constantly being behind that's almost more exaggerated than real life too. Like just a feeling that anytime you have a conversation with someone, something's going to come up. They're going to mention something that you're supposed to know about that you don't know about because you were in a cult. After something like this, you just try to find yourself. I'm not as eloquent with my words as Summer but and all of you, but going through the whole process and looking back, you just really can't help but be so very proud of yourself for standing up for yourself. Things did, did feel really hopeless and unmanageable and like, I can't take this anymore. And, you know, I did contemplate suicide at times. To realize that change is not just possible, but it's impossible to avoid. In the beginning, we were kind of introduced as victims, and I wanted to say something to that because I understand, you know, from the point, especially like when we're talking about a trial and, you know, victims and defendants, that makes sense. But to me on a personal level, I am not a victim and I wouldn't have been able to heal and overcome and thrive as well as I have if I had that victim mentality and if I had expected somebody else to save me or somebody else to do it for me. I understand Summer's desire not to be labeled a victim. She wants agency. We all do. But in my experience, I've had to fight to claim my victimhood. People have denied it to me, saying I'm not the true victim, as if a complex tragedy could only harm one person. For me, fighting to be recognized is an act of agency, not an admission of weakness. It took me a long time to accept that not only was the world changed, but I was changed. That it was okay that I was changed. That that was the only way it could be. And the best thing about this change? I'm no longer in survival mode. Next episode, we're going to talk with the storytellers behind the docuseries about what drew them in and what challenges they faced in framing this complicated saga. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe to The Truth About True Crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 